What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today I have with me JB and Rosario, or you guys might know him as Mr. Cogfit on Instagram. And he gives himself a little bit of a bio when we start, so I'm not going to bore you with that now. And today's episode is on anti-diet culture. And I just want to say three things, and then we'll jump into the episode. Number one, if you're unfamiliar or you don't have a deep understanding of anti-diet culture and what it stands for, which is a bit different depending on who you ask, we spend the first part of the podcast doing our best to steel man some of the main beliefs of the anti-diet community. Number two, this is not a podcast meant to bash the anti-diet community, anti-diet culture. There are many points we agree with. Things like, you know, fat shaming isn't helpful. And we agree with, you know, ver we're very pro-body autonomy. Weight stigma is bad. You know, fad diets are bad. Body positivity is good. Health-focused pursuits are good. You know, weight's not the be-all, end-all of health. We spend a good portion of the podcast talking about what we agree with and to what extent. But yes, we also discuss several issues we have with certain beliefs and things that are said by the anti-diet community. Number three, this is an extremely emotionally driven topic for many people. We know that. This podcast is just our opinions, but I think we do a good job adding some context and depth behind our points. We don't expect everyone to agree 100%, but hopefully you can use our discussion as a piece of the puzzle to form your own opinions. Enjoy the episode, guys. This was a really, really great one. Jabian, what's going on, man? Glad to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me on back, Jordan. It's really, really cool uh, doing this again, second time. Shit. Yeah, you are my second person that I've had on twice. And for those of you guys who didn't hear uh, the first podcast with Jabian and I, uh, we talked about logical fallacies in a general sense, but also how they apply or where they're found in nutrition and fitness. So a really great episode, super like intellectually stimulating episode and definitely helpful if you're, you know, navigating the social media sphere, trying to weed through the bullshit. Definitely, definitely a very, very helpful episode. So how have things been, man, since the last time we spoke? Uh, things have been good. Really busy. I'm about to graduate from college soon. So things are winding down. Um, and winding down, I mean, by speeding up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's been nuts. It's <laughs> uh, awesome. Exciting stuff, man. So just for people who... Who maybe didn't hear our first uh, episode together? Why don't you give just everybody just a tiny bit background uh, of who you are, kind of how you found yourself in the space, and you know maybe what you're currently really passionate about, which is obviously what we're going to kind of talk about today. Yeah, so pretty much I'm a certified personal trainer, certified nutrition coach. Uh, I study psychology and philosophy in university. Um, I'm really about science-based nutrition, uh, logic, reasoning, thinking about. Um, nutrition and health and uh, sort of philosophical sense. So just beyond, you know, calories or macros, but actually like, what do we mean by health? What do we mean by nutrition? What do we mean by diet culture, et cetera? So it's really just getting to the foundations of this field. Yep. And so today's discussion primarily is going to be uh, about, you know, diet culture, not versus, but diet culture and anti-diet culture. And we're going to do our best to define those things and talk about where we would agree and where we would disagree with each uh, stance, each viewpoint, each group. But before we start, I always like to, for the listener, kind of talk about like why I decided to have you on, because I think that there's just an infinite amount of people that one could have on one's podcast. Um, and I just think that this topic, anti-diet, you know, the, the, the vilification of diet culture, um, you know, it's a super, super emotionally driven topic and you are a very logically driven person. And we've had wonderful, wonderful chats in that regard. And I think it's, I think it, there's a overarching feeling of, or, or a notion that it's easy to feel and it's hard to think. Um, and, 
you know, you definitely come from a very logic-based, evidence-based position. And I think that that's important in this regard because it's a very emotionally driven topic. I mean, it gets very political, it gets very emotional, it gets very like individualized, very um, appeal to uh, anecdote heavy. And, you know, I definitely don't want this discussion to be an echo chamber because I know we both agree. So I definitely want us to make sure we're being fair to both sides or as fair as we can to be able to kind of, like we had talked about off air, steel man that position that we might, uh, that we're going to be kind of counter arguing against today. So I just think that you're a very logically driven person and you're somebody who's actually speaking out against um, this movement, this anti-diet movement, this like anti-weight loss movement. And I, this is not, and this is what we talk about in our first podcast, this is not about winning an argument. This isn't about better or worse. This isn't about I'm right, you're wrong. This is about moving closer to the truth. And in this context, I think it's about moving closer to what's actually going to help people. So I can only imagine the barrage of, you know, emotionally driven attacks that you get on Instagram for a lot of stuff that you've been posting. But I think it's important to challenge things. And I think that that's something you've done amazingly well. Uh, thank you so much, Jordan. I really do appreciate that. Um, I think like my mentor told me, uh, he actually told me this today, in philosophy, uh, if people criticize your argument, it's a good thing because it means that they take your argument seriously because if no one cares about your argument, nobody would criticize it. So the fact that I do get some of the responses that I do, um, a lot of it is positive, a lot of it is negative, but it's the fact that people consider it in the first place. The fact that people are thinking about it in the first place that is the win for me that there may be stepping back and saying, well, why do I, why do I believe in anti-diet in the first place? Like what's my justification for it? Um, or why am I going along with this certain rhetoric from that camp? It doesn't really make that much sense. Like they're starting to reconsider and some people don't, some people just want confirmation bias. And if you don't say what they want you to say, um, they're going to attack you and, and say a whole bunch of horrible things to you. But I think that's more of a, a reflection on their part than on my part, because I'm willing to question everything that I know. And I have. Um, I've questioned calories. I've questioned calories in, calories out. I've questioned, you know, whether keto is bad. I've questioned everything. So what separates me from a person who doesn't do that is that willingness to be open and honest and say, hey, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. But some people are just acting like they have all the answers. And they're not realizing that they're uncritically adopting something without question to, to, for many different reasons, for selfish reasons, for unselfish reasons, but still leaving them in a problematic place. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I, I deal with that. Yeah. I, I was thinking kind of while you were saying this, is the, the nutrition and I, specifically nutrition, but fitness space in general swings on an extreme pendulum, you know, one end to the next. And I almost think uh, it, there's an interesting parallel of like, people will say that, the the vegans created the carnivores like that the carnivore was created to as this like total anti-vegan that like carnivore was created to prove you know to fight against the vegans and i think that anti-diet culture almost was created to fight against this boogeyman of diet culture it's like almost it was created out of this um you know almost maybe even the opposite like you have uh you know this this and we're going to get into it in a second so let me not get ahead of myself what i'd like to do first is define what diet culture is. And I think that that's difficult because there's no, you can't look it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary and figure out what it is. So we're gonna do our best to define diet culture. We're gonna define anti-diet culture. We're gonna talk a little bit about health at every size. We're gonna talk a little bit about intuitive eating. And then we're gonna talk about where we might agree. And I think that 
we're going to focus a little bit more on the anti-diet culture side and how it kind of impacts the potential creation of diet culture that didn't previously really exist. Um, we're going to do our best to show where we agree, where we disagree, both generally and specifically. So let's just take one big step back and let's define diet culture as it's, you know, as best we can. Yeah. So uh, like you said, the problem with a diet culture is that if you ask 10 different people, it means 10 different things. There's no set definitive definition for diet culture. Um, and that's part of the problem. Some people define diet culture as anti, like anti-fad diets, which I think most of the evidence-based fitness community would agree with that we don't want people going on these fad diets that usually don't work out in the long term. And then some people would define it totally different, like a totally politically driven. Um, it's about being anti against the West, against capitalism, against um, it, it, whatever other political ideology that they hold. Uh, but the one that I, I usually stick with is from Christy Harrison, the person who wrote the infamous book, Anti-Diet, was, uh, if you ever go on her blog, she actually defines diet culture in terms which I think captures everything that we're kind of talking about. And she defines diet culture as a belief system that focuses on the values, uh, focuses on and values weight, shape, and size over well-being. So she's separating weight from well-being in her definition, which I think most anti-diet advocates would agree with, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, I would agree as well. Now, I think that that is kind of uh, sets the stage for what anti-diet culture would say. And it's, I think if we broke it down into really simplistic terms, it's uh, a diet culture would be a belief system that focuses on and values weight, shape, and size over well-being. And anti-diet culture would be in essence, very simply put the opposite of that, right? And how, what else can we attach to the definition of anti-diet culture there? So I've been writing about uh, anti-diet culture kind of like as a parody to what I've read about diet culture. Um, I defined it as a belief system that focuses on values, identity politics, lived experience, and a relativity of knowledge over objective discussion related to nutrition. Uh, so I did that kind of like a smack in the face. Sure, sarcastically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely the opposite of, of, sure. of diet culture. Right, right. It's a it's the it's the prioritization of well being and uh, health absent of weight and outside independent of weight. Um, and I think that there's man, I, I I spent a lot of time on making some notes for this because I think that there's every extremist group probably has some things that are fairly rational that I think the masses would agree with. And I think that there are sure, surely going to be people who are in an anti-diet culture who might disagree with some of the things we're going to say. And they're like, okay, I don't believe that, but I am anti-diet. And yes, there's going to be differences. And, you know, it's just the two of us on here. And so if you're listening to this and you're pretty anti-diet, you don't believe with some of these things, just know there are, you know, we didn't make this up. There are people out there who are talking about this. Um, these are a lot of direct quotes that we will be using. And so, um, yes, I think there are different levels of extreme. Um, but where can we, like, let's give some general principles of anti-diet culture that we might agree with, at least to some degree. Like, what are uh, one or two that come to mind with when you think of anti-diet culture? That's something that you might agree with to some extent, and you can add some context. So I definitely agree with not shaming people for their body size or perceived uh, as being fat or obese. I think that shame doesn't necessarily uh, get people 
to make a change most of the time. It makes them actually defiant. It makes them feel bad about themselves. And I think if you want to elicit change from what I know about eliciting change from individuals, that's a very poor way of doing it. A second thing that I definitely agree with is um, not fixating so much on like things like the scale or things like weight. Sometimes there's non-related weight goals that we want to strive for. Um, there's individuals who maybe have sports performance goals or different types of uh, behaviors they want to achieve, like sleeping better or eating more nutritious foods. And whether they gain, whether they gain or lose weight, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I also think the focus on uh, sort of establishing and building upon health behaviors, I really agree with because that can be sustainable, that we're trying to build sustainability for the long term. Um, so I, I definitely agree with those three points. Cool. Let me throw a couple at, and I'm going to, I'm going to also add yours in there and let's see if we can come up with some that, and you can disagree with some of the ones I wrote and we can have a you know, civil discourse here. But I said, the first one that I wrote was same as you fat shaming doesn't work. And I, I say that literally from research that does say that, that fat shaming does not work. Um, it is not a productive strategy to convince the masses across large populations to, you know, pursue health. And I think that that's also a touchy subjective phrasing there. Um, it doesn't work. Um, what's ironic is that a lot of times when I'll say that I'll, I'll inevitably get a DM or two of people who actually, who were previously overweight and had, you know, were in an obese BMI category who actually will anecdotally say that fat shaming helped them. Um, I don't agree with that, but I am saying that those people exist out there. Um, the second one I had was that moral attachments to body size are just wrong. I mean, having a, you know, uh, uh, stigmatizing around like weight stigma is wrong. Uh, viewing, you know, f you know, overweight people, people who have obesity as morally less worthy of love or, you know, moral attachments to body size are just wrong. Um, the third one was it's impossible. It's possible. This is a big one we're going to talk about. It's possible for someone in a larger body to be metabolically healthy and to love themselves. Like it is possible. I would agree 100% if that 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 is an argument that we see every single day. It's like you can't tell if someone is healthy or not just by looking at them. I agree. I think that that in a binary sense is true. It is possible for someone in a larger body to who has obesity to be meta metabolically healthy. That is true. I think that is an undeniable fact. Um I wrote uh, body size and health does does have a socioeconomic component that can often be overlooked. Um, definitely. I would agree with that as well. Um, for some, pursuing weight loss as an end can be counterproductive and shifting the focus to non-weight related pursuits can actually work really well if the pursuit is health. Totally. I agree with that too. Uh, weight loss and health are technically different things. I think that that's something that we've kind of said in multiple different ways at this point. Um, and then the last point, and I think it's important that we frame these because I think there are things that I would pick apart about each one of these, which we'll do in a bit. But the last one is maintaining weight loss is hard. And I think that is me rephrasing that what a lot of people would actually say in the anti-diet culture community is that it's a futile pursuit actually, and that weight loss doesn't work. Um, you know, and that it is a not worthwhile endeavor. It does not, you cannot lose weight. Um, you know, 95% of diets fail. Man, are we going to talk about that in a second? Um, and so I rephrased it as, Maintaining weight loss is hard. I would agree with that. I think this. Is, I think there's a lot of stupid shit that people do, and a, a high per, higher percentage of people um, who pursue fat loss are probably doing it in an extreme, unsustainable way. And yes, if you're doing it that way, 
man, your percent of chance of success will be low. So would you agree with all those? Is there any of those that I said that you'd like to expand upon before we kind of move on to potential disagreements? So I, I think the, the we have to um, specify what we mean by metabolically healthy obese. I think that was the only point of contention that I possibly had, as well as weight and health, because they are connected. Totally. Um, that, I, I agree they I are connected. Like, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And I feel, I feel like you, you definitely know that, but some people will argue that it doesn't, it's not connected, which sure. is not true. Right. Um, but metabolically healthy, obese category is possible. I'm not saying that's not possible, but if you look at the long-term data outcomes, it's only a temporary state. That is an important point that I would like to make sure we don't gloss over. So let me see if this is what you're saying, that even if somebody is, let's say has obesity, let's just use that BMI category uh, because it is uh, widely used in the research and has some really good correlational data to it, that even if somebody is metabolically healthy, which I think in and of itself needs a definition, um, it's that does not mean that that person doesn't have an increased risk of becoming metabolically unhealthy in the future. Uh, and that, like you're saying, it might be a temporary state of metabolic health, but it is still increasing the likelihood, correlation-wise, to... Uh, trending towards less metabolic health, let's say. Was that, that a fair summer, summary? Yeah, so when it comes to the long-term outcomes, when you look at individuals with obesity versus uh, individuals without obesity who are technically in the normal BMI category, the, the individuals with obesity are at increased risk for metabolic abnormalities. Now, that can be defined in a number of ways, but we're talking about increases in uh, CVD, increases in diabetes, increases in uh, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, et cetera. They're just at increased risk. So it's usually a temporary, a temporary category. Yep. So I, I agree with that statement. I just think that there's a disconnection. And I think a lot of the arguments are actually people talking past each other. Somebody will you will post something inevitably saying, you know, so Martin McDonald actually posts something today. Love Martin. Um, love you, Martin. And he said, you know, we need to come to terms with the fact that BMI is, a, is correlates well with health. It does. Um, and that does not, is that is not, you cannot uh, translate that to, hey, every person who has obesity is currently unhealthy. That's not a fair translation of that, of that sentence. Um, and as we're saying, like, this is, you know, I think, I don't know how many, what percent of the anti-diet community would would actually admit, and I'd be interested to hear this, what percent of that community would actually admit that they think that weight has nothing to do with health, that there are no correlates, that it means nothing. Now, I think that that, I almost can't imagine that somebody would think that. Now, I think that a fairer argument might be that it doesn't correlate, it, you know, we need to look at the individual before we just write somebody off because of their BMI. I, I get that. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with using it as a piece of the puzzle, not something that's um, in and of itself worthy of a prescriptive prescription, you know? Um, but are there, you, you tell me you're in this, you're in this right now, deep in the weeds right now. Are there a lot of people out there that are just flat out denying that there's a correlation between weight and health? Yeah, there are. Uh, someone just sent me a video where they're, they're saying weight, has nothing to do with health. It's the the um, detriments to health commonly associated with obesity come purely from fat phobia in the medical system. People have said that. I, I've seen individuals with PhDs saying that. 
Um, and these are individuals with PhDs in the sciences saying that. You know, so that is extremely it's worrisome and scary to me because you cannot prove that. Um, there's just a plethora of evidence linking not only on the cohort data, but mechanistically, um, we have randomized control trials. We have so much information showing there's a relationship there. You cannot deny the relationship. Now, is there individual variance? Of course totally. there is. Like, like with anything in health and fitness and nutrition, there always is. But we cannot deny this connection. We cannot deny it. Are there is there research out there that you find is often used in defense of this lack of correlation? I think um, the ninety five percent of diets fail study is an, is one. If you're familiar with it, I'd love to go over it. Um, and another one where people have said that you know a study that was done where thirty three percent of you know people who found to have obesity were metabolically healthy. Like have there, have there been decent? Is there research out there that people are pulling from that that they are using as a defense for that argument? So honestly, when I ask people for the 95% argument, they can't cite me anything because they don't know where that statistic comes from. They're just repeating what they hear from their echo chamber. I asked this lady one time, she was like, you know, 95% of individuals who lose weight, um, gain it back or diets fail. And I'm like, where are you getting that stat from? Like, I want to know where you're getting that statistic from. And she couldn't tell me. And most people where I ask this from, they either don't answer me or they attack me on a personal level because they can't answer my question. Um, and now the, the study that you're referring to from the 1950s, uh, I, I read about it a while ago. So correct me if I'm wrong, cause I know you're probably more fresh when it comes to that one, but it was, I believe a hundred individuals, they were um, told to lose a specific amount of weight. And there was a cutoff point. It was a very arbitrary cutoff point where it's like, if you lost more than what, 40 pounds or, or 20 pounds, I think it was people who would maintain the weight loss for 30 pounds for a year or something. Yeah. yeah, 30 pounds for like, I think it was two years or something like that. They weren't given any instruction. They weren't told what to do. And then for the follow-up, the individuals who did follow up, only uh, 5% kept off the weight that they were told to keep off and the rest did it. So they said, you know, 95% uh, pretty much failed. Um, they couldn't keep off the weight long-term. But like I just said, it wasn't, they didn't really tell them what to do, wasn't really controlled for it, wasn't really a strong study. And it was a small population size, 100 people. You know, to extrapolate that to say that all diets don't work, you know, yeah. it's kind of a, a big stretch. And like I tell people, I'm like, the 95%, what population are we talking about? Because like, what about the 5%? How much do they succeed in weight loss? How much does it help them in the long term? If we're talking about 5%, like, let's focus on that number 5%. If we're talking about 5% of a million people, we're talking about 50,000 people that are succeeding with weight loss. And we're talking about, you know, 10 million people, 100 million people, you know, uh, 10,000 people. Like these numbers, I'm just throwing these numbers out, but we cannot ignore the successes as well as the failures. And we need to clearly define what we mean by success and failure in these discussions, which I, I find that a lot of people can't, they can't do it. Yeah. And, I, and also just for context, like these, the, the, there's going to be a massively differing rate of success with pursuits in fat loss or pursuits in weight change, um, with different modalities, different levels of, of support. Um, I think if you asked me, what do I think the percent of people who 
you know, decide, you know, over the weekend after seeing a magazine cover to go keto, how many of those people years later have kept off a majority of the weight? Like, sure, I think that's a very low percentage of people, but I also think there are way more people doing this in a much more structured with support manner and are going to see rapid, much higher rates of success than that. And I think that that pulling a study from ni- the 1950s, which again, isn't, is, isn't in and of itself enough to dismiss a study, but these people were given very weak instructions, um, very weak control, very little, if any, support. Like this is not a real world. It doesn't have a lot of real world applicability, like external validity here, like um, for sure. And it's the most heavily quoted study literally of all time. Um, and even it's even like somewhat of a fa- like a logical fallacy here to say just because people, many people fail does not make this a futile pursuit in and of itself. Like even if it was 95% of people fail, it's still now the counter argument and be like, hey, like maybe there's something else out there that has a better uh, uh, rate of success, per, you know, when people pursue health. Sure, I get that. But to dismiss something because, hey, a lot of people fail. Guess what? A lot of people don't fail. A lot of people succeed and are able to maintain it. And what is success is maintaining your absolute lowest weigh-in for the history of forever from the future. Is that success or is success achieving some level of, 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 of health and maintaining that regardless of whether your weight moves up again? Like, like what, there's so many moving parts here and to kind of just take that one isolated quote from 1959 or whatever, like just seems like, I mean, it seems a little bit, um, I wanted to say risky, but it's, it's actually just dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to be saying, I think. I, I think like just to add on to what you were saying, um, when you think about Western medicine, let's say you have to take this medication for your health. That medication is not 100% going to help necessarily help you. It, nothing is ever 100%. My car can spontaneously combust right now and explode. You know, that's a small probability of that happening, but it's a possibility. Now, if we're talking about certainty, 100% certainty, you're just not going to get it. So when people throw on this arbitrary 95% number to say that weight loss is futile, it's like, no, it's really not. Because what about the people that do succeed, right? Um, if you look at the statistics for uh, statins, for instance, the success rate is not particularly high with a lot of individuals. But for the individuals that it does help, it helps them a lot. It helps them live longer, you know? So why are we ignoring, we, we can't ignore that. Uh, and just point to like, oh, the people that it didn't help. Um, mm-hmm. And just say like, is, this is a bad treatment. Um, because that would be a, a sort of messed up way of viewing treatments and interventions and just uh, the health sciences in general. There's never, a, like, no treatment is ever 100%. It really is like doing the best that we can with what we have. Um, and yeah, I just leave it off at that. Would you be interested in talking about how this has become a, a, a political matter and actually kind of come entirely out of science and into politics? Is that something that you'd be comfortable talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely talk- comfortable talking about that. So a lot of times the uh, anti-diet space is politically driven. There's a lot of political rev- um, rhetoric associated with fat acceptance, which comes from you know feminism from the 1960s all the way to current day. Um, where it came from a genuine place, uh, pretty much telling women how, how they should look uh, from the media, you know, also society, um, telling them how they should be and et cetera, et cetera. And pretty much it, it, was, it was aimed at challenging the societal attitudes in regards to fatness and experience of fat people. Um, that's really what fat acceptance is, from my understanding. But 
where it gets skewed is um, people also associate uh, anti-diet culture with, you know, uh, racism now because of um, the, the events that happened last year with George Floyd and BLM. Um, people also associate uh, this with postmodernism because a lot of the postmodernist and critical theory aspects are associated with, um, like we just said, BLM, uh, fat, fat acceptance, feminism, um, a lot of the racism arguments, the sexism, the ca- anti-capitalist arguments. Like it's just a, a mixed bag of a whole bunch of different shit from pretty much that. So it's, it's very much, if we, if we still look at the political spectrum, it's very much skewed to the left a lot of times with a lot of these accounts and a lot of these arguments. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is that this blurs boundaries as far as what we mean when we talk about science, when we talk about health, when we talk about politics. Um, people are using their political attitudes, which are largely based on opinion, to state factual claims, which can be very problematic um, just like with the whole BMI is racist argument that I've heard over and over and over again, it's based on opinion. It's not based on fact. Um, and that stems from political attitudes. Let's break that one down really quick because that's on my list of things to talk about. As you brought it up, I want to move to socioeconomic argument in a second. But um, let's go. Where, where is this BMI is racist? Where is that? Where does that come from? And and how is that or not applicable to to how it's used in the present day? So a lot of times when I'm, when I'm honestly looking at a lot of these uh, uh, creators saying this or I'm looking at um, a lot of uh, news articles writing about this, they're usually coming from the, it's a fallacy, it's an appeal to genetic fallacy. So they're talking about the creator of BMI, the fact that he was a white male and the fact that he used this, um, he, he tested BMI out on other white males in France because uh, his name was uh, Quetelet, yeah. Adolphe Quetelet. So a lot of times they're, they're confounding that with saying that it's racist because look at, oh, look at its origins. You know, a white man created this and used it on white people. So therefore it's racist, not for black or brown people. Um, and that's not necessarily true at all. Um, and a, a important piece of the puzzle that's missing in this conversation when it comes to BMI is that um, it's modern day usage. The modern day usage for BMI actually came from Ansel Keys and colleagues. The, the, the seven, he used it in the seven country study, but he also um, correlated it with uh, skin fold measurements. He correlated it with other more accurate uh, measures of body fatness. And he said in his original paper from 19, the 1970s, hey, BMI is meant to be used as a population tool. It's not meant to be used on the individual level because there's more accurate measures for individual body fatness, but we need something because the indexes that people are using are just not accurate because everybody was using their own different indexes. So it's like, how are we going to do population-based studies when we're all using different languages as far as numbers? So we need a set definition for body fatness, relative body fatness. And that's where you use BMI. That was the original purpose of BMI. This is where it comes in the public health literature. It doesn't really come from Quetelet. Like, it does come from Quetelet as far as the origins of it, but our modern-day usage comes from Ansel Keys and colleagues. And that's something people completely look over. Now, I would be interested in the question and, 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 and would like to pose it without necessarily immediately standing behind it, but is the fact that something, like, it's hard to do what I'm about to say, but is the let's say 
it was it created an, out, of, out of an origin where it was very racist, like almost like a, to, you know, something worse than what it actually was. Let's say it was, in fact, you could make a really good argument that it's racist. Does that take away from its applicability, especially in the context of what Ansel Keys had used it for and then what we kind of hopefully are using it for today? Like, I just think it's it's hard to do if somebody's saying, okay, this is the origin and it was created in a way that I think was, um, you know, discriminatory, let's say. Um, does that take away from the fact that this is a global screening tool across mass populations? Now, just we're going to talk about BMI. I think we're just going to do it. Like, if your doctor is sees your BMI, does not look at anything else, uses that as a prescriptive tool to decide what you need to do with your life, it's probably not a good doctor, like probably not your best doctor. But that is not the point of BMI. And so I had somebody DM me this morning after I posted the thing about, you know, Martin McDonald's clip uh, saying, you know, I had my, my doctor saw my BMI and that's all that he looked at and immediately decided this and this and this weight loss medication. And listen, if that's what's happening, that is not BMI's fault. We don't attack BMI. Listen, attack your doctor who's not looking at you as an individual and who, who perhaps isn't understanding how to use BMI as a mass population screening tool as one piece of a puzzle as a very introductory piece of a, to a puzzle um you know and so i think that it's this this there's a conflation between people hating on bmi versus hating on how it's used and if we are in agreement of those scenarios where it's being used incorrectly i'm all i'm all i'm all with it i'm with it i agree with you i think it's it's being it is often used incorrectly but as martin says hey it's hard to be a 14 bmi and healthy it's hard to be 40 BMI and healthy. And so there is, yeah. it is a tool. I, I agree with everybody out there who's like, hey, BMI is not the be all end all. It for fuck's sake, it for sure isn't. But it is a mass population screening tool that correlates with health and that you still need to look at the individual, but that doesn't mean it's not useful. It just means that it's not, you know, useful for this specific task of being prescriptive and comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think a lot of times when people um, keep repeating this point that BMI is useless uh, for individuals, it's like no fucking shit. It was never meant to be used on the individual level to describe individual body fatness. It was used to describe trends of populations over time. Um, the fact that BMI is increasing over time is not because people all of a sudden people just gained a lot of muscle. People there wasn't jacked. a muscle. People are getting yeah, like jacked. It wasn't a muscle flu where everybody just, you know, <laughs> took some fucking steroids. fucking just, testosterone in the water. Yeah, like, yeah. woof, yeah, we're yeah. all jacked. Yeah, so it had to come from somewhere. So it's body fatness. Um, and that that was the original purpose of it. And that's the original usage that should be used for. And like you said, it's one piece of the puzzle. It's like your doctor giving you stilts because you're short. Because you measure, or right, you're this height, so we're going to give you stilts. Or we're going to give you this medication analogy. to make you, yeah. Yeah, to make you, like, grow tall or something. It's like, that's stupid. Right? Or they're giving you health recommendations and health advice based on your height. Um, that, that's stupid. Oh. So it's like BMI is not meant to be used like that. And one point on BMI really quick is, that, listen, if you lift weights, BMI is a skewed metric. However, I think even, you know, some really smart, really jacked people would agree. If your BMI is, you know, if you're, if you're 350 pounds, 400 pounds, you know, if you're, you know, big rainy, you know, one of the biggest bodybuilders there ever was. If you're a Ronnie Coleman, like these guys were mostly muscle, a ton of muscle, very heavy, massive BMIs, easily obese. I can imagine, I can imagine some being over 35 BMI for sure. 
Um, these guys were, are at risk for disease. Like, I don't care how, I'm not saying, I'm just saying at the extremes, muscle or not, being extremely large, muscle or not, probably still correlates well. Like, there's something to be said about, like, a larger body just over time having complications. Like, I'm not saying that is always the case. As I'm hearing it out of my mouth, I'm cringing at the attacks that those sentences might get. But I'm just saying, you know, being 300, 400 pounds, like even like a, a extremely low body fat percentage, potentially like, you know, has a lot of muscle. Like those are, those extreme ends are still probably at a higher risk for bad things happening. Yeah. And the thing is, is that those instances are, are unicorns compared to individuals who, are 400, 300, 400 pounds who are bo mostly body fat. Not Ronnie know? Coleman, like, not, not, yeah. not Dorian Yates. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like yeah. this isn't, this, it's not a common occurrence. Like I would agree that there are risks because how the fuck did you get to 300, 400 pounds of pure muscle? Sure. Like we, we gotta, we gotta question right. you're If you're abusing steroids or something like that, th that already has. Totally. Big confounding itself. variable there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, the thing is, is that most people with higher BMIs, I would argue, most likely aren't jacked. Most likely aren't jacked. You, you, you probably aren't jacked. And if you are, uh, you know, and you aren't like 300, 400 pounds of pure muscle, abusing steroids, doing crazy ass workouts and doing all this crazy shit, you probably don't have to worry about the BMI scale as much. I mean, we could, we could argue about that, right? Sure. Um, it, the BMI, it really is a J-shaped curve. So there's a lot of risk at the lower end. There's a lot of risk at the higher end, but in the middle, there's a lot of ambiguity sure. in there. Agreed. And that's something that people need to take into consideration uh, for that. So so let's, um, I want to kind of summarize the points in which we agree, and we'll kind of move into some general uh, points of disagreement with anti-diet culture here. And so I think the points we agree, fat shaming doesn't work, moral attachments to body size are wrong. It's, it is technically possible in a given moment for someone to be in a larger body and be metabolically healthy, to have obesity and be metabolically healthy. It's possible in and of a single point in time, true, uh, in a technical sense, definitely. Uh, we'll I'm sure we'll provide some nuance going forward, but that is the truth. Um, for some, pursuing weight loss as an end can be counterproductive and shifting focus to non-weight related pursuits can actually work better for health. That is possible, totally. Um, weight loss and health are technically different things although i would say that in that sentence it misses it misses the mark a bit because there is a high correlation there um or at least enough of a, a significant correlation enough that it's worth attaching to the end of that sentence um and then maintaining weight loss is hard uh, and that not all not everybody who pursues weight loss is successful or gets healthier although i think that again there's some context i would add to that um i want to talk just very briefly about the socioeconomic component here that does often get overlooked. Do you find that this is an argument that a lot of people are in the anti-diet community are touching upon or are reaching for? Yeah, it's something that people mention, but it's not something that people internalize. People in the anti-diet space often frame obesity as a, a choice, like or, or as something, no, not as a choice. Let me rephrase. They frame it as something that cannot be changed or something that's permanent, like a permanent state, and that's not necessarily true at all. But they ignore the fact that some people do not choose to be obese given their socioeconomic status. Individuals in a lower socioeconomic bracket, we know, are more likely to be obese. And this is for a variety of factors that I can outline. But most likely, they're not being physically active. They don't have access to good, adequate health care. They have access to these highly palatable, uh, energy-dense foods. They don't have access to the nutrient-dense foods. 
So you quickly could see why they were more likely to be obese um, in the first place. And these are individuals who, if probably in a different environment, they would not be obese. So it's not necessarily fair. So you're saying that there's a that their that their anti-diacommunities uh, argument might be that this is a like pre predestined and predetermined, and then if the if that is the case, then why are we seeing um, something independent of you know let's say genetics uh, play such a large role? That that's what you're kind of saying. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I'm saying that the environmental component has a big impact on individuals becoming obese. It's not just genetics. It's not like I'm fat because I was born this way. No, it's like these individuals are dealing with obesity because they don't have the opportunity to choose otherwise. Sure, sure. I think that there's also, I don't want to miss out on just as you heard, as I heard you say that, I was like, okay, but just like there's obviously massive, there's also a significant genetic component. And I think that that, is. that feeds into perfectly what I'd like to talk about next, next words. I'd like to transition a little bit more to where we would disagree with anti-diet um, culture in and of itself, maybe as a as a tribe, which we'll talk about in a second, maybe how the, the tribe, the culture operates. Um, and I think what I'd like to start with is we're going to talk a little bit more generally about the points of view and the the position that, that people are, the lens that anti-diet is looking through. And then I do want to hone in on some very specific ones, but I think a good one to start with is reductionism. And I think that because you were just saying, okay, there's a socioeconomic, there's a very big environmental component, there's also a genetic component that talk a little bit about um, how, you know, anti-diet is a bit reductionist in their view of obesity. So they often view, um, from my perspective, they view issues with obesity, they view the, the, the sort of view of obesity, not from a medical or scientific standpoint, but from, oh, it's society is just saying, you know, it's diet culture just saying that this is, that, that, are, that are framing obesity as bad for you. It's diet culture that is telling you that you need to lose weight. It's diet, they're blaming everything on diet culture. So it's not necessarily that there's some truth to the fact that obesity might not be okay for your health. No, it's just diet culture. It's diet culture. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are just blaming diet culture or fat phobia. Or, you know, like whatever the patriarchy or, you know, the, the um, capitalism. Oh, there was some lady that was blaming capitalism for, for fat phobia. Now, you know, it's like, a lot of those things that people are saying, probably you would agree, hey, this is a component. This thing matters. You know, outside of a, a vague, you know, vilification of a potentially non-existing diet culture. I mean, if people are talking about single factors like this, you're probably, I find that that, that, that is like reductionism. Reduction, people who are reductionists, they use reductionist arguments, aren't wrong with the thing that they're saying. They are making it out that that is the only thing. It's not that that thing doesn't, you know, contribute to X outcome, but it's that, 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 that isn't the only thing, right? And that's kind of what, um, you know, people are, you know, will very easily, and now that I, now I'm, my brain is spinning because I need to ask the next question of, let's say, you know, anti-diet culture would say, okay, what's the cause of the obesity epidemic? Why are a lot of people obese or have obesity? Um, diet culture, because diet culture. My next question I need to ask is like, does diet culture exist? Like, I, I yeah. would have liked to approach that in a bit of a more linear fashion, but as you were saying it, I was like, shit, like, does diet culture exist and, and kind of where did it come from? So I think it really comes from the genuine, um, like the genuine fat shaming, the dissatisfaction with the fitness community, with the bullshit in the fitness community and the wellness uh, space. 
um, you know, obviously blaming people for their circumstances, often selling them bullshit treatments or giving them bullshit ideas about what health is and what fitness is. And I think from that discontentment, um, people kind of warp that and kind of group that together under the banner of diet culture from what I've seen and what I know, like, this is what I think people are doing. They're just grouping everything together with diet culture. Um, and these are genuine experiences. I'm not saying these aren't real, but you're using a simple kind of theory to explain the phenomena that we're seeing. The phenomena being the bullshit in the fitness industry, the bullshit in the wellness industry, the, the fad diet, diet tribes and the diet groups that we're always fighting against the bullshit as far as like, you know, um, don't do this exercise or only do this exercise, you know, like stuff like that. So I feel like we're taking those real phenomena and we're trying to use the theory of diet culture um, in the nutrition space, especially. Um, and that that's, that's where we're probably going to get to the next point where that's really problematic because the, the phenomena that we're seeing is observable and real, but is the theory of diet culture necessarily true? Is it necessarily um, valid enough to explain the phenomena that we're seeing. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and we're going to get there in a second. I, what I'd like to do is continue with, I think we have five or six points of disagreement and then some specifics that I think are kind of hot takes that I'd like to get to. So if you're listening this far in the episode, thank you. We're going to get some hot takes at the end here. Um, but generally, okay, so we talked about reductionism uh, where anti-diet culture you know, takes the massive multifactorial uh, disease that is obesity and and reduces the the inputs to diet culture or fat phobia or just one thing um, which I think we would I just think the the rational a rational person just can't possibly believe that weight gain in general or or just having obesity is just singular has a singular input um, but moving on, let's talk about, so I've, I've been taking some direct quotes from you now from your newsletter, which is wonderful. If you don't sign up for Jabian's newsletter, go check out his Instagram. Uh, I think link is in his bio. It's freaking fantastic. Um, if you believe, if you agree with a lot of what we're talking about today, cool, good, learn a little bit more. If you don't agree, I think it's important to challenge your beliefs. And I think Jabian's newsletter would be a really great way to kind of continue to evolve your line of thinking. So you used... Um, three components of general disagreement. The first one was selective rationality. The second one was undermining facts. And the third one was blurring boundaries. And I'd like you to just give me, you know, uh, some, some, some context, some framework around those three things. So these were really my um, critiques of anti-diet culture, the way I defined it and the way I, I saw it. So selective rationality is that often individuals who advocate for anti-diet use the facts, could utilize the nutritional facts for refuting um, obvious bullshit like carbs are bad for you or, you know, things like um, dairy is bad for you or just, just bullshit out their claims. They, they're capable of using the evidence for that. But when it comes to their claims and when it comes to their stance, they often ignore the evidence to the contrary. So they're irrational when it comes to their enemies or people that they perceive as against them or they're against. But when it comes to their own framework, their own ideology, they cannot critically look at the evidence or evaluate the evidence in a critical manner. So that's what I mean by selective rationality. They're rational when it comes to other people and their arguments, but when it comes to their own arguments and their own stances, they can't really look at the evidence that doesn't support what they say. 
yeah. or what they view. And potentially a, a, a higher valuation of lived experience against science and then not keeping that same hierarchy when the tables are turned. Yes, because you can't say, oh, anti-diet because of this person's lived experience. But then when someone says that, oh, well, keto worked for me because of my lived experience, they say, no, that's not based on fact and evidence. Like you just contradicted yourself. Yeah. Or I lost or I lost weight and my health markers went up or went, went in the right direction and I'm healthier and I kept the weight off. That's my lived experience, let's say. That's your lived experience, right? I mean, that's your yeah. lived, current lived experience. And so the you, we can't value one lived experience and not value another and then you know, occasionally decide that valued lived experience is more important, less important. I mean, it is a piece of the puzzle, but it has to be on equal terms when it agrees with your position and when it doesn't. Exactly. That was really one of the main points for um, selective rationality. Uh, for the second point, you want me to go over undermining facts? I think that you kind of did. It's, it's very, it's a very similar uh, uh, position yeah. for sure. Yeah, I just, I just made more. I, I just went more similar. Uh, I'm more specific. My bad into the details of that. But blurring boundaries is another really important one. Go I ahead. think we touched upon earlier. Mm -hmm. So really, um, anti diet when it comes to being a method for dealing with nutrition, especially clinical nutrition. Um, people often blur this with political ideology. So like we talked about with fat acceptance, when we talked about with feminism and postmodernism, um, what should be an objective discourse about nutrition and health quickly turns into a political conversation and arguing over opinion when it shouldn't be like that. And the issue with uh, blurring the boundaries is that you can't fight against anti-diet because it's so many things at once. You know, it becomes unfalsifiable. It becomes like a conspiracy theory in that sense, where it's like you can't argue against it because of all these different <laughs> considerations. It's like, where would you start arguing against it? Like, where where can we start? So that's that's a, a huge part of my issue. It's a big kilometer theory that could explain everything, and and if it explains everything, it explains nothing in my view, because it's it, that's too oversimplistic. Yeah, agreed. I have a, an, uh, I want to talk a little bit about tribalism and the creation of false dichotomies and the, you know, um, the, you know, you're either with us or against us mentality that anti-diet has created. And I want to ask you about that in a second. But if you guys aren't familiar with the word tribalism is, I have an episode entirely on tribalism and nutrition with uh, Danny Matranga that I will link in the description. So it goes over just in general, a lot of these camps and how uh, the tribalism in nutrition is, you know, potentially helpful or potentially harmful. Um, and so I feel like this is another one of those circumstances where it's created a, you know, you're with us or you're against us. And I don't know, I don't want to talk too philosophically, although it is fascinating, whether or not that is even even in the remotest way helpful, um, even if it's probably more harmful than helpful. Are there even any good parts to that? I'm not really sure. But how is, you know, anti-diet culture become a tribe? And what have they what have they created in terms of their own, like, kind of false dichotomy? So it's either anti-diet or diet culture in a lot of... Um uh, that's often how they frame it. So it's either you're with anti-diet, and if you're not with anti-diet, you're with diet culture. And if you're with diet culture, you're bad, and you're not uh, a part of the group. And you're, uh, like I was talking to a dietitian before, you're labeled as unethical, and you're labeled as not a good dietitian or a good practitioner or a good coach. So it creates a us versus them mentality, which isn't necessarily helpful because it's never that simple. It's never that mutually, mutually exclusive. You're not going to have one tribe of anti-diet and one tribe of diet culture, and you got to be on one tribe or the other. And if you're on one, you're bad automatically, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's exactly what it is. It's created this, you know, 
I might be being reductionist here and I'll put, put, put that out here, but it's created this, you know, the pursuit of weight loss, bad. The pursuit of, you know, weight gain, good. Like as if those are the two buckets that you're in. If you are somebody who's pursuing weight loss for any reason in any context, that's a bad thing. It's bad because it's bad and it, it's bad because you don't love yourself and it's bad because you, it won't actually make you healthier because it has nothing to do with your health and you actually will fail and you'll gain more weight or the opposite where weight gain and, 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 uh, you know, self-love has now been tied to weight gain. Uh, and I think something you posted the other day, which now we're going to move into what I'd like to do is move into some specific things that you've seen and heard that might be problematic that we can talk about. And one of them is, and I think you posted is like, that losing weight is not body positive, but gaining weight is body positive. And who, how did, who, who, who decided that that's the case? Yeah, that was the biggest point of contention. When you notice when Adele lost weight, a lot of people criticized her for not loving herself because she lost weight. And I thought that was freaking insane. It's her body, right? People are about body autonomy and these body positive movements that I could gain weight if I want to gain weight, which is totally fine. You could gain weight if you want to gain weight for your particular reasons, but I could lose weight for my particular reasons if I so choose to. And who's to say that's not body positive for me? Who defines what body positive is? And we saw the same issue with uh, Lizzo when yep. she wanted to lose weight. I, I don't agree with her using a detox tea for that. I think same. That was fucking stupid. Yeah, yeah, that was dumb. That, that was dumb. But her trying to lose weight was seen as bad or, yeah. or negative. Like if you see the comment section for under that video, it was horrible. Do you follow you know? uh, John God, uh, Beast to Beast? Uh, yeah. He did yeah. a good video on the, on, on Lizzo and the, and her detox situation. And there was, a, there was a lot going on there. I just think that, you know, she got torched for doing anything to do with weight loss. It was unfortunate that she was kind of also, in my opinion, doing some dumb shit, some dumb fucking 14 day juice cleanse, you know, um, yeah. and then talked about how great it was and all this stuff. So either her, her method, her method there probably wasn't, didn't help not put fuel on the fire, but I, but I agree. Um, I, t I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so that's that's one of the major problems with that, where we, we can't just arbitrarily decide body positive is just gaining weight when weight loss can be positive for somebody. If a person wants to lose weight for their particular reasons, they should be allowed to lose weight for their particular reason. That's body positive for them. They feel better about themselves. I, I, I'm... I'm we're going to go through some, some specifics and I'm going to start to, I'm going to say some things and we're going to try and pick them apart. But like, is, is, are there really, it's hard for me to believe. And I appreciate your page being out there because it's enlightened me. And I follow a bunch of anti-diet people to continue to like, make sure that I am uh, reformulating how I feel over and over again, being challenged and being challenged. But are there people out there that don't, believe in any context that weight loss can can improve one's quality of life I mean, even if you don't believe that it's that it can make you it can improve your metabolic health like are there not people out there like hey my, my joints hurt and I, I'm I'm not you know being I'm not able to you know and the counter argument might the counter argument I was going to say I, I'm not able to kind of live my life to the fullest and some counter arguments might be that you know fat there's a lack of like fat accommodation uh, in the world, uh, when it comes to like seats, seat size and stuff like this. Um, but are there really people out there who don't think that in that think in no context is weight loss going to improve or can improve or might improve, or is even in the realm of possibility that it could improve somebody's quality of life. Jeez, God alone, uh, uh, let alone health. 
Um, are there really people out there who, who don't who don't think that that like who believe that this is just don't why would you why would you lose weight? It's not going to affect your life positively at all. There have been some people who have framed the wanting to lose weight in any context, in any sense, as internalized fat phobia. So you are fat phobic to yourself if you are an obese individual who wants to lose weight or thinking about weight loss for whatever reason in any context. You are internalizing fat phobia because society has told you that being fat is bad. But that's possible. Now, I would say that... I would say that in a lot of cases, because I deal with a lot of clients day to day and we're talking about different methodologies and, and different strategies and different techniques or whatever to you know achieve XYZ goal, I believe very strongly that it's not what you do, it's the intent with which you do it. And I do think that there's probably a, a percentage of people, and now I'm not, I don't even know if I'm able to place judgment upon them, but there are people that exist out there that are thinking, I must lose weight, I must be accepted by society, and in doing so might engage in in acts that actually take them further from health because they you know they don't have a good support system or enough nutrition education and i think that there are people that are doing it out of self-loathing uh in the pursuit of being accepted and because of society like it, the, the archetype of that person does exist um but that's not everybody and and that's just again reductionism to assume that that's what everybody is doing um because what you had said, it's like that person exists out there totally. And I think a lot of pursuit of weight loss is born out of self-loathing. You know, I think that that's totally a thing. But that doesn't mean people that weight loss in and of itself is begetting that self-loathing or is the cause of that or is exacerbating that. Um, and even if your argument is that it can, that doesn't mean that it is always um, and there's just no context, no nuance there. It's very, like you said, very dichotomous, very black and white. Like you're losing weight, you hate yourself. You're gaining weight, you love yourself. Like that is just, that is so ridiculously oversimplified. Yeah, it really is. And I want people to consider like when we talk about eating disorders and disordered eating, it's usually a psycho. it's mainly a psychological component. It's mainly, like you said, some form of self-loathing or seeing yourself, your body image in an unfavorable light. It comes from that. Now, how you act upon that distorted view of yourself is the behaviors that we usually see and what we're talking about. But is that necessarily the behaviors itself causing this distorted view of you? Or is it starting here first in your mind and then translating through your actions? You see what I'm saying? So you cannot assume that the act itself, weight loss itself, is causing the issue when it could be your mindset regarding weight loss that's causing the yeah. issue. You could replace weight loss with, let's say, tracking tracking calories. Um, you know, you'll see invariably that tracking your food is disordered, that it is disordered eating. And if you don't have disordered eating now, you will. And if you do now, it'll get worse. Like, well, I, well, I, won't, I won't rant on that. I would love to hear your take on that argument. Yeah, I don't think that calorie counting in of itself is a disordered eating pattern. There's people who I know that have anecdotally like counted calories for years and they're totally fine and that's how they live their life and that's how they're flexible with that. But what I think is if you're coming at it with the intent, uh, with the improper intentions for uh, whatever that means as far as you think that I'll make you a better person or I'll make you more lovable or more likable or give you some type of self-worth, you're, that is a problem in of itself, and that can lead the, to the disordered behaviors that are commonly associated with calorie counting, um, from what I understand. Um, so, I, I, like I said, it's not the black and white, this is bad, don't do this long term, do this long term, 
it's really what is your intent and how are you thinking about it and what's your mindset going into doing these specific actions? Totally. With the intent with which you do it. And I'm actually going to say something that is I'm okay with getting some heat on. If you are trying to lose weight, and I think this is where anti-diet culture would already stop me. They'd be like, okay, you've already failed because you are already trying to lose weight. Let's move past that. Let's move to the, the methodology here. Let's say you've chosen that you'd like to pursue weight loss. No matter what methodology you choose, it will be based around some foundation of restriction. And so if somebody says, hey, I'm going to use quantification, which I'm going to track my food, and that's going to be the most direct way for me to create a calorie deficit, which I need to lose weight. And, and I and I probably have already lost some people because they're like, oh, weight loss, don't do that. That's not, you know, that's, it's it's fat, internal fat phobia. It's, it's a lack of self-love. It's, you know, an appeal to what you think society wants. Let's move, let's maybe some people are still listening. Let's move on. Now I've chosen that I'm going to do this. Well, okay, I can, no matter what I do, I mean, name any strategy that is out there to lose weight. It is inherently based around a foundation of restriction. You need to be giving your body less food than it needs. So when someone's like, hey, tracking your calories causes an eating disorder. I'm like, okay, does does going keto cause an eating disorder? Does cutting out all your carbs cause an eating disorder? Any more or less? I can't, I can't, I couldn't come up with a reasonable argument why it would cause more of an eating or less of an eating disorder. What about, what about restricting your feeding window? What about, uh, you know, only drinking meal replacement shakes? What about only, you know, having uh, delivery meals to your house? What about like literally, I, there is nothing you can tell me that does not have, that involves weight loss. It doesn't have some form of restriction. And if it has a form of restriction, then it has some potential to create negative, uh, kind of negative reinforcements or to reinforce negative relationship with food. I don't, I, I can see where people come from with counting calories. It's a bit detailed, but man, cutting out all carbs and going keto, someone's going to tell me that that's less restricted, that that's less likely to cause disordered eating habits. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I mean, me personally, my, my eating disorder, because I, I did suffer from eating disorder, unfortunately, in the past, came from going low carb. That's how my eating disorder started. So for me personally, like, yeah. The keto, like, well, it was Atkins. Atkins caused my eating disorder. What is, is clean Atkins. is clean eating going to cause you less of an eating disorder? Dude, clean eating to me is way more likely. Hot take. In my opinion, clean eating, I have more clients who come to me from a clean eating background that have worse relationship with foods than people who come to me with from years of calorie counting. Now, again, that's my experience. Now, research to, to, to defend that. But I think you said low carb. The, the restriction of certain food groups in and of itself to me just feels, I think, tangent. I think tracking calories, especially with a coach with the right support system, I don't think this is the same across the board, but it should be an inclusive experience. It should be about the inclusion, the inclusiveness, the inclusion of the foods that you like. It's about flexibility. It's about, you know, you're restricting only one thing, calories. You're not restricting anything else. You're, you're It's about including foods. You know, I, I have way more clients who go through a positive experience. Again, too big, too, too big of a tangent here. Sorry if it's a lot of anecdote here, but People who find calorie counting to be something that reintroduces and 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 reduces the fear of these bad foods, you know, eliminates that dichotomous good and bad food thinking. So I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that you can't tell me that tracking calories is more disordered or potentially more disordered or might be more like than other forms of calorie restriction. I just don't see it. And also, when we take into account the ad lipidum um, studies, where people are not consciously uh, restricting themselves, but they're eating less. They're eating less on a high fiber diet, on a higher protein diet, on, on a high fat diet. Um, so are they disordered? They're eating as much as they want, but they're they're eating less 
um, than maintenance, though. They're eating less than they usually eat. Yeah. I also think that that that, that is not that doesn't have a lot of real world real world applicability. I think the percent I'm not uh, I don't think there that it's a high percentage of people who are going to be like, I'll just eat, you know, I want to lose weight. I'll just eat more protein and more fiber. And it's just the weight just falls off and I keep it off forever. Like, is that is a massive glorification of what it takes to lose weight, especially in today's food, massively like distorted food environment. Like for you to people are like, oh, you don't need to count. Just eat more protein, more fiber, eat balanced meals like the fuck are you talking about? Like that maybe in a, in an ad libitum study where people are, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe encouraged to eat more of a certain food or, or even in a random controlled uh, study where they're given certain foods with and then given like uh, given food options and then allowed to eat ad libitum. Like that doesn't necessarily happen. I, I think that I'd love to hear from somebody who's like, yeah, I lost 40 pounds, didn't think about anything, just decided to have an extra serving of broccoli with dinner. Now, I, they exist out there. The, the, those people totally exist. Um, but I probably would say they're the minority in today's, you know, massively... Uh, a lot of hyper palatable, very cheap, very tasty, high calorie, low satiety foods at the ready. You can order DoorDash, be here in six seconds. Like that is difficult. And I think you added to the main issue with I, when I said that obesity is probably not a choice for many people. When they have access to these highly uh, energy dense, highly palatable foods, they don't have access to the opposite. So they're probably gaining a whole bunch of weight because they're eating a lot of calories but they're not consciously aware that they're eating all these calories because this is what's in their environment. This is the distorted environment in which they live in. So they don't have the opportunity to, uh, you know, go on a higher fiber diet or go on a higher protein diet or, you know, go on a, a really high quality diet where they probably wouldn't eat as much otherwise. Yeah. Agreed. Um, agreed. I'm trying to find a couple more things that we can, uh, you know, kind of, kind of disagree on, or at least open a discussion around. But, um, let's talk a little bit about, and and let me know we're coming up on an hour here. I think we're past an hour. So if you got to go somewhere, you tell me, um, but let's no, talk, a, let's talk about obesity as a swear word. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to laugh real quick. In my view, I'm going to be straight up. I don't care who gets upset about it. Obesity in of itself is a disease. It is a disease state. It is not a swear word. It's like me talking about, um, you know, cardiovascular disease. It's like me talking about being diabetes. It's like me talking about cancer. It is a disease. So if it is a swear word, then every other disease that we have in the medical books is a swear word, in my view, straight up. And there's, there's I have the data to back it up. I have the evidence to back it up. It is a disease in its own right. An excessive amount of body fat. It is a disease. And and and, and now, like, we, has it turned into something that is, like, how has it become something where we are now, painfully, there are a lot of people who will put an asterisk in the middle of the word as if it's a curse. Like, where? How did we get there? <laughs> It's, it's political correctness. Um, it, it really is uh, problem, uh, problematizing language that you don't agree with, um, finding offense to whatever usage or whatever medical terminology that you don't like, um, trying to uh, attack the scientific and medical establishment because it doesn't tell you what you want to hear. So it must be, you know, uh, bad because it's, it's not, it's probably like it's, it's, putting a pathology to my lived experience because my lived experience 
um, is more objective than scientific data or evidence or what the medical community has plainly said, um, which obviously I'm saying this in, in a sarcastic tone because it's not true at all. But it, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. A lot of it comes from, like I said, look into the fat acceptance community. A lot of it is political and a lot of it is tied to anti-diet. They are very much linked. Um, so that's where the, the sort of um, not saying the obese word because it's a bad word comes from a lot of times. Yeah. I struggle with the lack of body autonomy that goes on. I struggle with being judgmental about what other people choose to do with their bodies. Uh, I, I struggle in all circumstances. Like I think that there is, like we talked about, there's, there are different intents and, and, and there are probably likely on the whole net net more healthful, more mentally healthy intents um, that, and, 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 and less mentally healthy intents behind the pursuit of weight loss. But I just don't understand where somebody gets the idea to have an opinion about what somebody else does with their body. I don't understand where that, where, like who the fuck thinks they have the right to think something about, or, or speak judgment to what someone does with their body. Now, it might be, there might be more, you know, I'm, I'd be interested to hear uh, a counter argument to that, but maybe somebody would say overwhelming the healthcare uh, system and, and trying to cure obesity is a, is a, worldwide pursuit that should be talked about and that maybe that having a judgment on it, on it is a good thing for the betterment of everybody long term. I'm trying, I'm trying here. I'm grasping at straws. I just don't understand like on the day-to-day -day surface of like somebody wants to do X with their body. What? Who, who are you to decide? And I think I've seen people who were in the fat acceptance community and I've watched, I think again, a lot of uh, John's, John God, uh, uh, material about circumstances like this where they are berated for that. Like, it, how do you, uh, sorry, it's, fr it's, it's really frustrating. I don't understand where, where people get off being able to have an opinion, a judgment about what somebody else does with their body. Um, I, I think I'm definitely with you about body autonomy, but the only consideration I have to say is that I often compare it to, I mean, this is going to be very controversial on here, but the vaccine argument you know, people will make the same argument for vaccines or medications or medical treatments that could potentially affect society and affect other people. Well, that's your argument that, that it has to be that there has to be an overflow into affecting others. So that that yes. that's where that's where they're that's the only counter argument is saying, OK, like I get it, body, body autonomy. But if it does affect others that, OK, that's a fair I mean, it's a fair beginning to an argument. We have to talk about how that might yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it, it comes from more of the utilitarian perspective. And Correct. It's not. It's not. It's not perfect. Utilitarianism is not perfect. What's Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it, it it has some truth and validity too. When you look at public health, the the point of public health is to help the most people possible. And when you undermine public health in whatever sense, right? Like if you're at the restaurant that you go to, like the waiter, the waiter or the chef decides not to wash their hands, and they get you sick, that affects you. Not only you, but the other patrons in the restaurant. Well, someone would so, say obesity is not contagious. That, that's the counter argument, right? That is true. It's not contagious, but it does have financial burden. That's and that does the, affect everyone. Yep. And that, and I understand. I definitely understand that line of thinking. I, totally. It. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's very utilitarian. Correct. This is, it affects other people for sure. Yeah. That's that's fair. And I, I will admit, I don't have the economic prowess to kind of uh, discern, you know, how big of an issue that this this actually is economically speaking. But uh, if you do, you're very welcome to pr produce that that side of the discussion. But I, I acknowledge that it exists. 
Yeah, it does. But I like I, I said, because I made the argument, too, that you can't cough obesity on someone. So with the whole pandemic that's going on, people that are focusing on obesity are focusing on the wrong thing because it can't change overnight. A person who is obese uh, or dealing with obesity, they, they didn't decide, all right, I'm going to become obese, and then tomorrow they were obese. Right. It takes years. Yeah. Yeah. It takes years. So it will take them years to get out of that. And it's, the, a, it's a chronic disease. Yeah, yep, yep. And and yeah, metabolic Mike, the fucking worst. Oh my god, he's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, why would I wear a mask? Why not just exercise and get healthy? It's like, dude, this is a big deal now. Like, like, uh, sorry, this guy bugs the shit out of me. Um, all right, yeah. cool. Let's 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 uh, let's wrap it up. I have a question that I'm I'm I hope you know I'm not. It's not that I hope it doesn't go very long, but I hope I didn't open up a can of worms. Um, and is something I asked you to think about. It's like. Let's say you, first of all, you have a lived experience. You have come from, uh, you know, living in a larger body to the pursuit of weight loss, to the pursuit of health. And you've been around the block. Uh, you've done a lot of things, um, some that you regret, some that were better, some that were worse, that were learning experiences. So you have a good amount of experience yourself with this. But let's use a hypo uh, hypothetical of, let's say your brother has just come back from the doctor. Doctor says he has obesity, you know, BMI of, you know, 33, let's say, um, and the doctor says he should strongly consider losing weight to improve his health long term. He comes to you with this information because, you know, you know, you know, you're in the nutrition and fitness space. Like, what do you say to him? Like, what should that person do? What words of advice would you have for him? Well, honestly, I would really look at I, I want to see people as a whole instead of just one one part. So it's like like we mentioned before, you can be obese but are you engaging in health behaviors? Are you trying to um, be physically active? Are you eating fruits and vegetables? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you drinking enough water? Um, what other surrogate markers are there? Like, is are, are you dealing with metabolic abnormality? Weight loss would help with that. So it, it it just really just it's really about starting people off small, not telling them they need to do this, this, or this but getting them on the right track and the right lifestyle. Because when people start to live in the right lifestyle, they probably won't deal with the disease of obesity. If a person is eating fruits and vegetables, sleeping well, drinking enough water, physically active, not you know drinking a lot of alcohol, not smoking cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera, they're probably not going to deal with a lot of the health issues that many people are dealing with in Western society. It's tough because another way of saying is that they pro that person's probably not you know, carrying enough body fat to become obese. So it's difficult to parse out those two things. Um, and I like, I think that just summarize kind of what you said. It's like, hey, let's look at one other surrogate markers, uh, not just this one thing. I think that that was one thing I was really hoping you'd say. It's like, okay, you, you have a BMI of 33, but let's look at everything else. Let's see what else is out there to kind of direct us here. Um, and then let's look at lifestyle and let's see where we can, you know, engage in, in and form healthy habits that, you know, may lead to weight loss, may assist weight loss, but are certainly more a pursuit of, of metabolic health and overall health, sleeping more, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables, maybe increasing protein, maybe lifting a weight, maybe going for a walk. I think all of those things independent of weight, it's hard to make them independent of weight loss um, because it's very likely, it's almost a, I don't know if, I don't want to be this cynical, but I think there are a lot of people who are very like anti like weight loss as a pursuit. They're not anti weight loss as an outcome. Um, they're anti-weight yeah. loss as a pursuit and it's like, okay, you also lost weight. No big deal. Like, yeah, that's cool. But like, it's, you know, the, and I'm not saying weight loss is the only thing, but I think that there's like some 
part of a, there's some coach out there who's like, weight doesn't matter. And then tells you to, you know, uh, eat two, two servings of fruits and vegetables with each meal, protein, go for a walk and lift some weights. And then you secretly, you lose some weight. And you know, that obviously has some correlate to, to change in body markers. Um, they're, they're, they're in the background, like, like happy that that happened. But yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a complicated <laughs> matter. I think recognizing that it's not BMI is not the only marker and that we should look at other surrogate markers. And then also taking a big look at lifestyle factors that, independent independent of weight are a good thing that we see also correlate with more healthful outcomes and then i just i'm curious if you leave weight out of the discussion uh so i usually don't um because it is important like it's a factual consideration like we i wouldn't leave out if a person had a high ldo you wouldn't leave out this the fact that they're probably consuming a lot of saturated fat as a, as a matter of fact, you know, but I'm not going to fixate on that. You know, I fixate more on the process. The outcome will happen. I can't control the outcome. That's the stoic in me. I can't control the outcome. I, I can do all these things and then try to get you to get on this number on the scale, but it probably won't happen. But if I could get you on this process, you could probably get there. Yeah. And we could probably reduce your weight or whatever and, and achieve whatever health markers and health goals that you want based on the process alone. Yeah, I think the problem is, or one of the problems is that the minute you bring up weight, it is has been so elevated up onto a pedestal as the be-all, end-all. I think if you bring it up in the conversation, most people will see that as the pursuit. It's difficult. I totally agree with you. But I also think that that's an unfair argument because you don't give people the benefit of the doubt to understand the contextual, the nuance of it's not just weight. We're going to pursue healthful habits and eating fruits and vegetables and moving is good independent of your weight. Weight is, you know, a, a, a variable that affects this as well, totally. Um and I think that that's the art of coaching and the commu and communication and being able to have somebody, um, you know, not treat somebody like a child and, and, and you know, try and I don't, you know, try and actually communicate to somebody in a way where they understand things in the way that they really are and not uh, be like, yeah, you got to lose weight. That's it. I'm not going to bother with this, this other stuff because I don't think that you can handle that understanding that much context, you know. Yeah, they're an intelligent human being. They could make their own decisions and understand why they're making those decisions. And we empower them with accurate information, accurate Dang. guidance. Yep. You know, that's how we empower them. Yep. Um, we don't fixate on one thing. Like, I wouldn't fixate on, you know, having them run how many freaking miles just to lose some weight. Like, that's stupid. That's yep. a stupid way of getting someone to lose a lot of weight. Or, or even losing a lot of weight in the first place. Some people don't need that. So what do they need? How do I empower them to sustain these changes long-term for their own goals that they themselves define? I do not give them their goals. They give, them, they give, they give me their goals. Right. That's how I always say it. I'm their guide. I'm not their guru. Totally. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great, uh, great way of framing it. I always will say I'm the GPS. You know, I'm not the driver. You're the driver. Like, you can plug in where we're going. I'll show you kind of the different routes to get there pros and cons of those routes. Um, and you're going to be the one who inevitably is driving yourself there. So excellent, man. Excellent. Excellent. I'm going to end the show there. It's an unbelievable pleasure to have you on. This was a wonderfully uh, stimulating conversation. Thank you so much, Javian. Tell everybody where they can find you, drop some plugs, have at it. So you guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Cogfit. That's at mr.cogfit. I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Cogfit. No dot at M-R-C-O-G-F-I-T. And my newsletter is Critical Nutrition on 
Substack, and that's where I usually post a lot of my information. Sign up for that if you guys really want to read up on what I put out and if you guys really enjoy this conversation. Yep, and, and for sure, if you guys enjoy this conversation, go follow JBN on Instagram. Um, get ready to to have your beliefs uh, challenged a little bit, and I think it's a super healthy thing to do. Whatever, whatever outcome you come on, whatever place, if you made it this far in the episode, whatever you believe, like you should be following people who believe something else. Um, and it either will continue to kind of strengthen your position or it'll help you evolve your permit per, uh, position into a likely more constructive middle ground. So awesome. Thanks so much for coming guys. I appreciate you listening. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.